This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to C-Suite Radio. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger. Without a little help, some guidance and a whole lot of love along the way. I'm Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Well, we're returning this week with our current guest, Matt S., for the second half of our conversation on what it means to be a storyteller and why legacy, what you provide and where that helps them to arrive, matters for those who create. You'll also hear us speak quite a bit about your tribe or those who provide. These are the folks who are with you for life, who will go with you on that journey again and again in exchange for those three most essential currencies of money, information, and time. Why? Because you've helped them to reach toward or achieve a better life. And that story of who they are, what you provide, and where that helped them to arrive, be it a solution, a service, even a tale of some other world or what might, is a legacy we can all give, both as creatives and entrepreneurs alike, to our tribe. We hope you enjoy. One of my good friends is a philosopher, and we spent a a fair amount of time from our experiences talking about just that. Because on one point, a while back, I'd had a dream, and I remember this monolith that was being unveiled as the way to solve or to prove that once everything else passes, our truth, our understandings will remain behind. People will get, they'll grasp it. So there's this whole pomp and circumstances and ceremony to the thing that will show we existed and let people know and pass our immutable answers on to them. And when they rip down the curtain, pull the ripcord, et cetera, you know, et cetera, it's this massive monolith, and there are just pictographs on it. And I don't even remember what they were. <laughs> but a thought occurred to me, and I, and I, I remember I had it even when I woke up. Would there be such a time that even if we no longer grasped what the context of those were, we'd still be able to derive and extract a kind of story from that? Which is, in reality, what we do in archaeology and, our, and 
to a certain extent, anthropology as well. Not that other people are alien per se, but that we're always working with an incomplete set of information with less than ideally we'd like to have. So how do you take the world you see in your head that is so complete and detailed and rich that is translated as the Zen Cohen would go, finger to the moon, how do you provide enough to shape, to guide, to direct, so that they can get close to what you saw that first time? And that's that's the challenge. And of course, the answer is different for for you know everybody, every work. I just I just want to I don't for your own personal interest. I don't know if you're familiar with. I believe it's the uh, the long now or the long clock. Gregory Benford, the, the author Gregory Benford, is involved with this. Uh, it, it's a project to create exactly what you're talking about. These sort of structures that will withstand time, <laughs> ge- geologic time, uh, in order to, to communicate certain basic things about who we are now. And you could say that the golden record on, on, on Voyager is, is something like this too, but sure. they're building these on Earth right now. Uh, and that might be something of interest to you. I think it's a, because it speaks to that deep-seated desire, as we talked about before, for, of, for legacy. Absolutely. Not just to prove that we were but that we had something of value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? and that's that's an evolutionary imperative. I think that's that's you know uh, one way or another we're we're driven to make more of ourselves or to to make more of ourselves that then make more. And because we are now uh, basically uh, culture is is our uh, sort of species level offspring. Right, and it, we we're we're at the point where we're adding data to <laughs> to the universe, <laughs> mm-hmm. and yeah, so naturally we want to. I think we want to make sure that that uh, that that perseveres uh, on at, at the level of the species. Some people are thinking about this, but it, it's certainly I think at the core of a lot of our of our efforts. I mean, you know, and and you could get even more broad and philosophical about it and say it's all of this is really just saying, see me. It might have been Hoffman as he was being interviewed by James Lipton in, God, I'm blanking on the show now, but you know, when Lipton, oh, Actor Studio. Yeah. Lipton for a long time, sit down and talk with mm-hmm. various creatives about their journey and their understanding. I believe it was Hoffman because he was sharing a story of what it had been like to act alongside the great Sir Lawrence Olivier. Mm. And at one point he asked Olivier, why? Why do we act? And Olivier, in his fashion, leaned down, and I can't quite do Hoffman, gets down to Hoffman's level as he's sitting at the table, I think grabs him by the chin or stares right in his face and says, look at me. Yes. Look at me. <laughs> and he was performing to a certain extent there to make a point. Always. <laughs> as, as was his want. But the, or might even have been Lipton sharing the story itself, has been so long. Right. You know, fluid memory is. But the the point there that when we create something as an entrepreneur, as a creative, as a creative entrepreneur, someone whose wealth is acquired through our own or someone else's talents, creative talents, legacy is fundamental because it is a quest, it is it helps externally, I think, to others define our worth. It should not paradoxically, intrinsically define our sense of self worth. Right? right. We cannot judge ourselves as creators based on what we have made. Mm-mm. That's destructive. But yeah. others will, in that active exchange, they're going to provide us with something, their money, their time, their information. Mm-hmm. And what we've made is the thing to, or help someone to make, is the thing to be evaluated. So 
that ultimately leads to a question of legacy. What kind of story did this help me tell about my life or someone else's? If, as you argue on your blog, fiction allows people to build upon and create and establish greater empathy by living lives they might not have lived otherwise. Right. Now, I will never be a dragon. I will probably never be a some mutant variant of a human based <laughs> off of faster than light travel alterations to my existence. <laughs> but reading about a culture where that is the case, about individuals within that population to which that is the norm, helps me to think about what life for other people must be like who are not me. And I don't know how many times I'll quote Foster Wallace as this is water on this, but we do. We have that choice every day, every time we decide or interact with other people about what their story is and must be like. It'll probably never be fully or entirely true, but we get to decide. Or as I've said since I launched the show, we all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why, but we forget is that we have the power to define them. Right, right. And my invitation to you, my what I, I if you don't have an answer for this episode, that's fine, because I certainly want to have you back on for more, and I'll be on your show soon, too. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, what is there a question, a thought, an idea, a thing that you want your readers, your audience, because we haven't even talked about this on this episode, the idea of growing IP outside of its initial form fully, right? Yeah. Beyond if it's a book now, when does it become a television show, a comic book, a movie, and so on? Is there a question, a theme, an idea, a takeaway, something you find yourself chewing over each time you write a tale? Yeah, I think I think there is. Um, and this, I, I answered this question to a degree uh, years ago, and and I can build on both the question and the answer that was presented then. And again, pardon me for a little bit of context and backstory, but uh, uh, on my own podcast years ago, I used to have a lot more in, uh, interview guests speaking of James Lipton, I didn't have the stack of, of blue cards, <laughs> but, but I did have five sort of tentpole questions that uh, I would use as, as springboards for a more freewheeling conversation. And the first one was always, why do you create? Mm -hmm. And for sort of the inaugural episode, knowing that I was going to be having several of these interviews, I asked, uh, I asked someone to, ask me those questions and basically put me in the in the interview seat so that other potential guests could hear how it goes, right? Um, and so when I was asked that question, I tried my best not to think about it, really, you know, like, don't think about the elephant in the room, uh, <laughs> before I was asked, right? Because I wanted it to be as organic as possible. And again, in the spirit of, of transparency and vulnerability and, and establishing a connection with, with the people who are listening and, and, and the people who are consuming what it is that you have to create, I tried to answer that as, as honestly and truthfully as possible at that time. And, and then, and I promise this is going to connect to answer your question as well. And I realized that I create, uh, especially when it comes to fiction, but uh, even music or, or, or other things that I do, because making something tangible where before there was nothing, it provides a certain, a certain stable space. It provides a, a thing that came out of me that, it, it, to, to, to be blunt about it, that I had some measure of control over. A world, if you will, in all senses of the word, that was mine. But then, of course, I had to think about, well, why in the hell? <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, and and I realized that you know, growing up, I had had uh, uh, it was a circumstantially a, a stable environment, you know, mom, dad, whatever. But the emotional environment was very unstable. My father was very uh, emotionally manipulative, and uh, he was not physically abusive, but he was he was a damaged person who who you know spread his collateral damage basically. Uh, and so it was a very unstable, uncertain environment in term in in those terms. You know, I never worried about my next meal or whether or not we'd have a roof over our head or anything like that. But it was a uh, you know the, the ground was never stable, <laughs> and and so once at a very young age when I figured out that. I think I always knew you sometimes hear people being interviewed and they say, there was the day that I realized that somebody actually made the story that I, that I was reading and I could do that too. Well, I always knew somebody else made it. I could read the, you know, written by. <laughs> um, but once I started making my own stories, you know, being able to sort of disappear into those in the same way that I was disappearing into books for hours at a time, that I could not only, you know, find refuge in other people's created worlds, but that I could make my own. And then when it came to be to the point where I was sharing those worlds with others and finding that they had gratification there as well and, and, and some release. And in some cases, this is going to sound immodest, but life-changing experiences from my works that I've, that I've been honored to, to be told about. Uh, a time or two, I think that it became something that, you know, creativity, fiction, especially, became a place where I could define the environment, again, in the broadest sense, in the, in the philosophical and the emotional sense, I could define the environment that I wanted. Didn't mean it, you know, not, not a place where everything's coming up roses, you know, there's conflict and all that good stuff. But it was a world of my creating that I could at least have that particular solid ground, even if it was out of my own head. And then to, from there, to be able to explore my own sort of uh, issues and development and questions and, and faults and flaws and aspirations, to be able to ask those questions in fiction in such a way that other people could empathize as well and find solace perhaps or growth or challenge, you know, I don't care if it, it pisses them off, you know, at least it's causing them to face something perhaps uh, and to grow in some way. You know, I, I, and every now and again, people, clients, or even just people I'm mentoring or, or casually helping on Facebook or whatever, they'll come up with, you know, I have this idea about a story, blah, 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 blah. blah. Do you think it's too specific? I'm like, no, that's the point. <laughs> That's the point. Be as specific as possible because in specificity is universality. So why, what am I trying to say? What am I trying to get across? Uh, I'm trying to be a better human. And in that process, you know, give people those moments of empathy that maybe even surprise them. And in being surprised, they realize they're looking in the mirror, you know, and perhaps are, I mean, it sounds lofty, but they are perhaps improved or expanded or, or again, prompted, challenged to, to be better humans themselves. It sounds to me that the, the central or the, the guiding desire here 
is to show what is possible in its entirety. Not simply to ask what if, which sometimes is used to define speculative fiction on the whole, the genre that you and by and large write in, but to show what is possible, that the world is not just. And you don't answer what the world is just. That's what they bring to the experience or read in the tale, what they take or provide in this experience. Whatever they have with them when they come to what you provide, you're, it sounds to me like the book you're writing is, at least in part, going to show them perhaps even what else is possible, if they're willing to, if they'd like to. Thank you, by the way, for sharing rule number four from our guide, Specificity is the Soul of Narrative, which I appreciate is <laughs> a source borrowed or respectfully from John Hodgman, the humorist and entertainer online. <laughs> he would often share that on his show. And the first time I heard it, I went, yes, to your point, that's true. Unless we know the particulars, the details were not there. Yeah. You with the character, with whatever's happening in that moment, we can't be moved unless we're right there beside. And the place it sounds like you want to move your readers to is some moment or beat or space beyond the world they have, they up until that point have defined. That life, the world, your existence is not just these things, but also this one beside. I mean, broadly speaking, I agree. Yeah, uh, I, I think so. I well, you know, like the 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 latest thing I put out um, called it's a novelette called "The Perfumed Air" at Kwan and Tag Bay, and it's it's a Shaper's World story. It's it's the same universe as Light of the Outsider and the next book, uh, Shadow of the Outsider, forthcoming. Um, and it's I knew you know sort of part of, of the big plan that you mentioned, uh, my audacious you know uh, self-imposed uh, structure to the next six years of my life. I knew that I was going to put out a sort of a bridge work between the first novel and the second. And I had a general idea well before that first novel was finished, uh, Light of the Outsider was finished, the, uh, what that bridge work would be. In the middle of the, the long drawn out process of writing Light of the Outsider, my mother died. Mm. And suddenly, and I mean, she was 85, so, you know, uh, 83, but, uh, but it, it became, suddenly I really knew what the story was about. And again, here we are again, it, it, it's this, this story, uh, sort of a quest story in this fantasy world, but magic is only mentioned, never shown. There are no, uh, well, okay, there's a couple of strange beasts, but they're just beasts of burden. Uh, mm. <laughs> you know, there's no, uh, I deliberately mention one character's axe over and over again as sort of a wink to check off and he never uses it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but in that story, I mean, it was very self-serving. You know, I knew I needed to work some things through. And the story becomes, and I don't want to give too much away, but it becomes the consequences and the opportunities for growth in the face of this seemingly insurmountable, tragic inevitability. You know, just to bounce back to the earlier things, how the hell, how the hell do you sell that to a fantasy crowd? You know, <laughs> but, but, but so very specifically, right? Uh, you know, I'm looking to explore things deliberately and in the next book i'm 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 some of the themes are going to be sort of the difference between the goal that you think you want and and the thing that's actually important to you and i and i realize that the, those of us who are familiar with story structure that's a very common thing but 
but I'm going to be really looking at it as a as a theme in this theme from several different perspectives. Um, but the goal there, I mean, I think fiction should have a point of view, right? I think, uh, and I don't mean the character's point of view. I mean the the uh, the authorial point of view. The 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 writer, short of being an actual character in the story, should be telling the reader something. This is the stand I'm taking about this thing, you know, and it, I, by no means should it hit you over the head, you know, but. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the nature of polemics or. You know. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, but, but I think, and again, you know, I want the reader to be challenged in some way. And I don't mean like confront. Well, I do mean confronted, but I don't mean in a confrontational way. I mean, I want them to to come away thinking about something that perhaps they haven't looked at or or have not been aware that they they should be looking at, or maybe they've been looking at it and now I've sort of forced them directly into the path, right? And and uh, and I'm that in, in saying this, it all sounds like you know, oh, Selznick's books are all preachy and whatnot. No, there's you know, this is in and around the the rescuing the infant prince and 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 trying to figure out uh, the origin of your superpowers and what <laughs> keeping out of the way of the giant monster <laughs> you know it's the underlying point you know what you know uh, maybe what i'm what i'm trying to do to sort of enhance and refine my answer to your question maybe what i'm trying to do is let people see well, you know, I guess I kind of said it before to sort of surprise them with their own, with their own stuff. I think what you're getting at is you keep doing this, so I have to keep reminding the reader that you have. In the, guide, in the seven rules reflections or guys or rules reflections, call them rights if you want to writing stories that sell. This is rule number three, giving yourself the space, memory, time mm -hmm. to ask what if and follow to why. As you've demonstrated, part of the creative work here is to take that space, allow for the memory, provide the time in order to find, to take the leap to go. And sometimes you have to edit, revise, think and reflect, but that's all a natural part of the experience and the process. So I've done this myself on the show. I don't mind letting other people take that time as well. So thank you for <laughs> one, being willing to, but to also demonstrating is that too. But to your point, yeah, that's, yeah. You're, you're, you feel that using your work also should provide that for the reader, that they and the reader engaging the tale should have this space, memory, or time that they wouldn't have needed or necessarily had before to reflect, to feel challenged, to decide, which I think comes back in full circle to where we began this conversation during our intake calls with the question of what it means to be a storyteller. And I like to say that traditionally, historically, there are three things storytellers used to do for the folks in their tribe. And one nowadays that they do as well, teach, entertain, guide, and sell. Why? Mm -hmm. To inspire, as you said, a thought, course of action, or I think importantly for you, remember something by. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't, this is, I think, maybe important too, is, is, is we don't really, as, as authors, we don't necessarily get to choose Despite our our uh, subtle or heavy-handed efforts, as the case may be, we don't really get to choose what the reader is going to take away. <laughs> no, you know, uh, I was at this convention, two thousand five ish, and walking with friends, you know, down a hotel hallway, and 
someone approached me because they recognized my voice from the podcast edition of Brave Men Run. And uh, this had never happened to me, but they were kind of over the moon about having the opportunity to actually thank me for what I had done. And they were almost in tears because of all these resonances and themes and feelings of, of I'm not alone that they got from this book that were nowhere near my intention. <laughs> and it was a, a real lesson, you mm -hmm. know, uh, at that point that, uh, I mean, number one, I was, I was so grateful and so gratified that I'd been able to do that. But it was the first time I kind of realized, I think, you know, I'd probably thought about it or known, but it was the first time I had viscerally been shown that, you know, we, we don't necessarily get to choose what, how we change people with our work, which is why I think, you know, overall, the important thing is, is that we do somehow change or, or affect people. You know, if, if, if you, if you walk away, it, it, it's fine to have, you know, sort of calorie free food now and then, you know, <laughs> that, that uh, really just fills the time and it, 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 but doesn't really provide nourishment if it tastes good. And okay, that was a neat experience, but but why not try to do more, you know? Why not try to, to load that thing, that piece of art with, with some meaning? And, and, and here we are again, and have it resonate beyond the experience. You, you watched Jupiter's Legacy, right? I did, yeah. Okay. I, I guess I'll end with this. It's a, it's a bit of a spoiler, but as folks on this show know, we talk about stories, so spoilers are inevitable. Mm -hmm. if, if you guys don't want to hear about it, just fast forward a little bit and you'll pass over. But the basic premise is that people gain powers through extraordinary means and then have to live with the consequences of that. One of the main characters, Sheldon, is ostensibly a Superman stand-in leading a League of Justice, as it were. He has a union of heroes who are deliberating whether or not they want to adhere to an ethical code that some of them feel is far too dated for the times they live in. And Sheldon has, at one point, a recurring set of scenes with a man who's clearly his therapist. The whole scene is coded as <laughs> older fellow, bearded, studious, with the pipe taking notes. This is, this is the therapy scene. He's on a leather couch. This is, they're not being subtle with the contextual uh, cues to let you know what the scene's about because there's an important twist here. 
the therapist is a little bit too cynical for the bright-eyed Sheldon, but Sheldon seems to appreciate that the man does not at all accept what Sheldon says at face value. He insists upon the code. The therapist says, you just need the code to make the world livable. And they go back and forth. And at the end, Sheldon thinks and says, you know, it feels like the only person who gets me. And I forget the exact order of lines, but it's important. One or the other delivers the, well, you know, who would have thought a man who tried to kill you for 20 years would be the only one? You know, effectively, who would have thought that the only person capable of getting you is the one obsessed enough with you to bother? Right? <laughs> and with camera pans over to criminal genius of 20 years finally captured, this therapist, man who is now his therapist, is Sheldon's former nemesis. Someone who would have, as per the Joker and other classic nemeses in that genre, have been obsessed with the hero and the why behind them. And Sheldon steps inside of the maximum security cell, but the scene is fascinating, not just because of the theoretical underpinnings of superhero tropes, et cetera, and the reasons people attach themselves to them or like to, but the genuine weird friendship of a sort the two have developed now that the trappings of their previous conflicts have been put to the side, that they can actually talk about what the world is and isn't like, how it's changed, and what to do or not do, how to live through it. Because in a way, it's past, it's left both of them behind. and. I thought it was a brilliantly structured scene, but it was also a great moment to strip away the superficial elements of superhero genre to get to the narrative that's at the heart of this. People had extraordinary means to enact the world they wanted to live in, but did they make the right choice? They don't know, they never will know, but they still have to decide from that. And that kind of tale is a story we all have to live with at some point in our lives. Yes. Yeah, and that's I think rightfully so. You've you've kind of pinpointed that that is the theme. That scene is is the theme of the entire show. It's the story question. You know, it's I speak about hearts of the scene to talk about what happens in a given scene. That line is the heart of the scene, but mm -hmm. that scene itself, to your point, is the beating heart of the narrative. Yeah, yeah. And I think, as sometimes happens when you're creative, it's hard to articulate or find that at first. And sometimes you don't find the one that resonates with a portion of your market audience or tribe until they tell you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, or sometimes we don't even know it. I mean, it was years after Brave Men Run had come out that I'm like, I think I was, I think I was rereading it uh, to do a, a revised edition, which I did when the, the when Pilgrimage, the follow-up novel came out. And I was like, this whole thing is just me working out my daddy issues, <laughs> which I mean, like, okay, fine. But it's like, you know, thank goodness. I didn't really think about that when I was writing it because it would have, it would have changed the whole thing. You know, it would have changed the tone. I probably would have been too uh, obvious about it and, and all of that. But, uh, but yeah, you know, just like we don't always get to choose what the reader gets out of it try as we might we we don't always really get what we're doing until much later we have to grow as people and and as creators you know and and yeah uh, mark millar the creator of uh, uh jupiter's legacy and many 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 other creative works in the comics world i mean that's his thing that's uh, he's all he's been doing the superhero deconstruction comment on the on the on the real world thing pretty much all along you know Kingsman was a a stripping down of the James Bond super spy genre. Yeah, yeah, but but the same kind of thing. And and you know he he did uh, the Authority, which was uh, he followed up uh, Warren Ellis's run on the Authority, and that mm -hmm. was 
if you if anybody out there loves uh, Jupiter's legacy or things like that, then they need to go back and read the authority um, because it's the same thing. It's just like what we have these we have these we have the ability to make these choices. What do we do with these choices? You know, what, what can I? We'll talk about this more on when I'm on the episode of your show, Sona Totem. But can I share with you the the moment I realized or found that first part of the scene in the the prologue for the book? Yeah, because I struggled for a long time with where to begin. That's the moments people first arrive in the tales, what they attach to, and by the prologue itself isn't chronological, nor is the book. So. On the one end, for a long time, I had all these expectations. Well, the, the prologue has to do these things. It has to establish the rules of the narrative. It has to establish core themes. And all that it has to, it has to. It has to go in the way of what it is. <laughs> so when I finally looked at it one day in the rewriting I'm doing now to decide on the first scene, it's Adam, nine or ten years old, standing out in the snow after his parents are fought, just standing there in the snow, letting it fall on his face. In that moment and nothing else, his mother comes out to find him. And... I decided to actually, in the prologue, write the heart of the scene beneath each scene, because the book itself is about time, memory, and loss, and to a certain amount, a certain aspect of it is recursive. So it's not just that this is the story being told, but I'm reflecting on it. So here's the tone in first person of him living in the moment, and then beneath that is looking back at it from now. And the first two of those are, I want things to stay the same. That's the first scene, his mother comes out to find them. And the second scene is the two of them standing on the road, snow still falling, poplars stripped bare of their leaves as his father's walking back up from the pond carrying this box. And this was such a pivotal moment because I didn't know what was inside the box, even if the readers didn't. And I had to decide that it was okay for inside that box to be Adam's heart, even though that shouldn't be possible. If that is possible, the world's a very different world than the one I thought it should be. <laughs> what else? Did, you know, If that's true, what else is, right? I had to let go of so many things to accept that one. But his father carries his box up that's been buried at the bottom of the pond. And he says, we're going away as he gives the, back, you know, the box back to his son and, says, and eventually return. But it's your mother and I will both be, not just the father is leaving, but they're both this time for an unknown amount. And then the rest of the prologue is the why. <laughs> and the heart of the scene for that second scene is they never will be. I want things to stay the same. They never will be. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I should have known this because the other main character I do interstitials, the first few lines of his are uh, an abbreviated poem of Faust. And not just Faust in particular, but the one moment Faust gets his wish, where he actually gets to live in the moment where he wants to live, and it's terrible. And he wants to give it all back. Stay time in your own decanter. I want it bottled up, I want to drink it all, and it's terrible going down, because then it's gone. But the that with you know, that heart, that theme was always right there. It just took me a while, a journey of life, as you said, to recognize in my own work. So I think part of, if we're to summarize this conversation today, part of what it means to be a storyteller is to accept that you yourself will not always know and to be all right with that. Yeah. To allow yourself that space, memory, and time to find it. To hear others tell you what they find. Well, it's it's, you know, I, I always try to say you know, we talk about tribe and whatnot. And I, I always refer to my tribe as the community, sure. not, not the audience, because it's a collaborative exercise being a creator. And I don't mean, you know, collaborating with other creators. I mean, it's a collaboration between you and those who are consuming the thing that you create. Naturally, 
you know, we're, 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 there's going to be things about our own work that we don't know and that we depend on the people who, who experience the work to help us see that's kind of integral. Uh, it's, it's something that we, we, we shouldn't forget as creators. Uh, if, 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 and I've run into a lot of people who really don't care about this, if we want to grow as creators yes. and people and people, and, and, and it's a, you know, a positive feedback loop, you grow as a creator, you're going to grow as a person, you grow as a person, you're going to grow as a creator. If you're always understanding that there's more for you to learn more for you to more room for you to expand and and more room for you to take things in always as long as we keep that in mind you know we're going to we're going to we're going to have something new to learn and and the audience the community because an audience is passive an audience receives a community exchanges right and so thinking Mike Watt, the 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 great bass player and and songwriter, he he started in the Minutemen and Firehose and lots of solo work, and he was the bass player for the Stooges for a while. He's he's a, a, a long time journeyman, sort of punk rock bass player. He has a saying, you know, you, you look up to somebody, you look down on somebody, you're gonna get a crick in your neck. You look eye to eye, no crick. <laughs> and, and, and he's talking about that in relation to not just your fellow creators, but to the audience. You're not, you're not delivering them tablets from on high, right? And mm -hmm. also you're not, you know, uh, placating to their every whim, right? <laughs> to put it another way, you're not writing to market. <laughs> that would be the placating to every whim. And, and you're not, uh, well, delivering the tablets from on high. Um, that would be the other extreme. You, you, you're trying to have a conversation through the medium that is your, your, your selected you know, cho choice of medium, your, your way of expression. And yeah, I mean, for me, and I think it, to, be, to be frank, and why, and why not, why stop now? Uh, <laughs> um, to be frank, it, that's part of my frustration is, is I, am, I am at a point where with my creative endeavors, I am challenged by that effort to communicate. I'm having more trouble communicating to the people who I, I think should, uh, th that I want to engage with. But again, that, that doesn't mean, you know, you give up or you, or you write lit RPG or, or, or gargoyle books, you, <laughs> you, uh, you just, you find the tribe, you find the audience, you look for new people to, to communicate with. And because finding those new people is going to be about, uh, you know, discovering new input, new conversations, new uh, experiences. Yeah. And, and, and just, I mean, uh, I think it was James Baldwin, who uh, I'm going to have to broadly paraphrase. Oh, no, here it is. It's, I actually put this on my monitor. Talent is insignificant. Uh, he says, I know a lot of talented ruins. Beyond talent lie all the usual words, discipline, love, luck, but most of all, endurance. You know, and uh, that's it. You got to, I, I have to be reminded myself many times that, that it's about pursuing the growth, pursuing the, that expansion 
you know, and continue. This is a communicating that we're doing. This is this is about connecting with other humans and uh, keeping that sort of central. I think is an underpinning to my work, and and hopefully it's something that all creators are thinking about. If again, if your goal is to try and create a lasting work, um, you know, to try and dig into some of these more perhaps challenging themes, you can still have all the the trappings of genre and, you know, blockbuster sensation that you want. Just tell stories for humans. Did you see Jojo Rabbit? Yes. Yeah. It's such a difficult story. To your point, it challenges, it confronts, it's funny, it's awful. But I didn't walk away from it with the same point of view I had when I went to see it. Not that I knew entirely what it would be. I I was familiar with Taika Waititi's work. So speaking of expectations and genre, I knew enough about what he had done in the past to have a sense of what this would be like. I didn't expect him to be as unvarnished as he was about the brutality of the story. Although to be fair, that kind of story you cannot hide from the awful and the beauty of his side. And I think the scene that stays with me still is the moment when Jojo declares that she is not his, you know, she cannot be his father, she cannot tell him what to do. And she walks over to the fireplace, this is Scarlett Johansson, takes a bit of what we would call schmutz, right? And takes a bit of the coal and the oil smudge, wipes on her face messily to make a makeshift beard and mustache, (laughs) puts on his father's coat and imitates his father and demands he act. That scene to me resides alongside the moment where Jojo thinks he's finally cracked the code as to where the monsters reside, the Udenar, and has the girl illustrate, and she gives a picture back of monsters crawling out of his stupid head, as she says. Yeah, yeah. Where Titi takes the narrative of the story and uses that to turn the mirror back to us. Where are monsters in our heads? We make other people into them. Yeah. Where is truth? Where is loss? Where... She, she tries to hide so much from him and he wants so much to not see it. But the world strips all of that away in this story. And yet there are still scenes like the brick joke of the German shepherds, <laughs> which I won't spoil. <laughs> but the, you can, to my point, you can have the sad, the funny, the beautiful, the weird, you can, the weird, you can have all of that in the tale. You can even write that, as you've said, to do the one-off, to do the fluff, to do the calorie, or not not calorie free, calorie rich indulgence of a tale that people pay you for. That's fine. The question comes down to what kind of storytelling do you want to do for whom and why, right? Mm -hmm. Are you looking to rate the stories that people will buy right now in order to sustain, to meet, to satisfy, to provide other things that you need in your life? If so, then work toward that. Are you looking to edify, to change, to challenge? If so, decide as you have working on your plan and challenge yourself to work toward that. It is funny, but it comes. It does come down to before you create to have the self-knowledge you needed, you need, or to discover what you need to of yourself to know why in this instance, the thing you're making, you're creating. Why are you creating it? For whom? And where does it help you or them arrive? It might just be a tale for you to exercise, as you said before, feelings that you're going through. Maybe you publish that, maybe you don't, but the tale served the purpose it needed to. Well, I was just because the, the two the two things you mentioned though don't need to be mutually exclusive. No. You know, uh, by any means. And and I think that's what I'm trying to say is 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 there's no reason I'm I, you know let's let's make a stand here. There's no reason other than laziness to not 
go ahead and create the calorie rich sugary thing that lo and behold also has, you know, 32 grams of protein in it. <laughs> I, we, we did a podcast story, storytelling experience a while back where they all wanted to be superheroes and they fought a magical DJ who dropped the bass on them literally and figuratively. Was it very silly? Yes. Did it also deal with some weird and unusual underpinnings as Millar was doing of what it means to try to live in that kind of world where things expect you expect things and people to be destroyed constantly by the ubermenches around you running amok? Mm-hmm. Yes, that also came out naturally during the narrative of, dear God, what did we do in the process of stopping this that we thought was so awful? And I think it's important, as you said, if you allow yourself that space, not just to arrive at where you think you'll arrive, but to find the rest of it, take that journey, right? Mm-hmm. To be willing to not know everything, to be surprised, and to know or to find what it is. I phrased this well one day. I don't know if I'll be able to. You will never know if the book, if the tale will help people arrive at the place you did prior to them. If you you travel that same journey across the same sea, but you do know you're putting your readers, your audience, you're putting them on some kind of boat with what you provide. Mm-hmm. And you trust, you hope, you try to build in such a fashion that it will take them to where they need to arrive. Yeah, exactly. Where they need to arrive. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Before we finish up today, where can folks find you? Can they get their books, listen to you, connect with you? The easiest thing to do is to go to mattselznick.com. It's M A T T S E L Z N I C K.com. You can see links to my various works. Right now, I'm pretty much exclusive to Amazon. So, of course, you can also go to Amazon and just search Matt Selznick or Matthew Selznick, and and you'll find my stuff there as well. Um, But at mattselznick.com, you'll find all of it. Um, My services business, my creative stuff, uh, my uh, periodic blog, Scrib Totem, where I write about... uh, Anytime there's a lesson that I might learn or something I might impart from my own experiences as a creator, I'll uh, I'll write a, a scriptotum article. And similarly, my podcast Sonatotum uh, serves the same purpose to sort of explore what it means to make stuff and find success as we define it and and hopefully stay healthy and sane in the process. All of that is at mattselznick.com. I'm on uh, the usual, usual social, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Facebook and Instagram, it's Matthew Wayne Selznick Creates. Uh, and Twitter, it's at Matt Selznick. And uh, oh, I should also mention that if you become uh, a part of the community of friends and fans, which is another way of saying join my mailing list, <laughs> I, uh, you know, in, in return for the, the privilege of going into your inbox now and again and letting you know what I'm up to, uh, I will deliver to you uh, weekly free serial fiction uh, set in the Sovereign Era universe of Brave Men Run. It's uh, kind of having like having a little uh, a little soap opera delivered to you once a week, um, and it's open ended, so it just goes on and on and on. Free fiction, yeah. That's that's about the size of it. My latest work is the Perfumed Air at Quanantag Bay. It's available in ebook and uh, ebook on Amazon and audiobook, at least now, directly through me, waiting for it to be approved on all the various audiobook services. And uh, my latest novel is Light of the Outsider, which is a great introduction to the Shaper's World 
fantasy setting. It's uh, it's a hybrid. It's a fantasy story, kind of a low fantasy story mixed with a caper tale. It's all about seven, five or six, five or six, seven people who are all for various reasons, trying to find a kidnapped baby prince before all the usual hell breaks loose. Uh, and, uh, you know, nothing goes as, as planned, of course, because it's a caper tale. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, there. That's it. <laughs> Matt, it's been a pleasure having you on. I've had a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I had a hunch that this would be a, a nice, meaty kind of in the weeds, deeper conversation. And uh, you certainly delivered on that. I, I really <laughs> hope. No, I, I, I do. I appreciate it. It's, it's great. To, I mean, a lot of times we get on podcasts and we talk shop, but we've been talking, you know, we've been going beyond the nuts and the bolts. We, we got into the factory where the nuts and bolts are made, which I appreciate that. Uh, and hopefully, you know, in my, my ramblings, I've given your listeners some value uh, and something to take away. Oh, and I, I, I should mention, I, I don't know if you, um, do you have a way for, for readers to comment or, or listeners to comment or leave feedback or anything like that? We do, yes. Okay, good. Well, I'll make sure you'll let me know offline where that is. And I'll, I'll make sure that uh, I poke my head in now and again, because I always like to try to, you know, if people have questions or want to follow up, uh, mm-hmm. I always like to try to t- take part in that conversation. So thank you for segueing beautifully into that. For comments, certainly. I honestly believe Instagram is the best place to do this because when we put up the autograms too, they're easily archived. So at HP Tigers, that's with a Y, we'll have the audiogram. We'll tag Matt in that. All the show notes will be there and you guys feel free to leave comments there. If you are a patron, of course, that's at patreon.com slash herebetigers. Again, with a Y, you can leave notes, thoughts, comments on the Patreon itself or on our Discord and the appropriate channels. That is now $5 a month for everyone to be a tiger. And that gets you one mini episode a month, three short writing lessons, as well as access to whatever other monthly events we do. Sometimes those are live streams. Sometimes those are online games we play, usually through the Discord. And if you want to connect to us otherwise online, it's at JacerTheRealist. It's my old handle ages ago on Twitter. That'll probably most likely turn to HP Tigers sooner or later, but that's on Twitter. We'll also be in the show notes. Lastly, since I mentioned it this time in the episode, if you would like to download our free guide, that's Why Stories Sell dot com slash guide get your free guide there do a self-evaluation of what you're awesome at and what you could use some help with i offer free sessions first time to anybody who wants to talk because as much as i love writing i love doing this too so thank you again matt for joining us we will have you back on for a world building session of course and in a couple of weeks time i will be on your show sauna totem to talk about trying to adapt my work into an appropriate form for later on growing that ip i love it I can't wait. This has been a lot of fun. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.